Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 700 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them arranged in about four different ways. Um, This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on every page of the website, and there's a page explaining alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Dr. John Churchill. Now you can say thank you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Rick. He said it prematurely before. (laughs) John was born in London. His interest is in psycho-spiritual development, integral theory, contemplative studies, Western esotericism, and Mahayana Buddhism. And all that began in his adolescence. During this time, John received the esoteric planetary dharma transmissions that would in time unfold as his contribution to a planetary fourth-turning teaching. He spent 15 years training and teaching Great Seal Meditation in an Indo-Tibetan Mahayana lineage under the mentorship of the late senior Western teacher, translator, respected author, and clinical psychologist, Dr. Daniel P. Brown, whom I interviewed a few years ago. He is also a founding member of the Integral Institute, led by esteemed transpersonal integral philosopher Ken Wilbur, who is also on BatGap. John has received advanced training in attachment therapy, hypnosis, positive psychology for peak performance, and the pointing out style of Mahamad Mudra meditation. For the last 25 years, he's developed a fourth-turning planetary dharma practice, which includes the somatically-based contemplative practice path embodying the open ground that integrates psychosomatic healing, adult development, and meditation. John holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from William James College and is a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. Married to his partner, Nicole, since 2000, they are co-founders of Samadhi Integral and co-directors of Karuna Mandala. Well, we could spend the next two hours, John, just having you unpack every little phrase that I mentioned in there. <laughs> that must have been my wife's doing. She's <laughs> comprehensive. <laughs> yeah, but that's good. Good to give people a, an overview of what you're up to. I first heard about you because a friend of mine did a psychedelic session with somebody who had been trained by you. So we'll probably talk about that too. Let's go for the highest first. You know the principle of the highest first? There's so many things you could do, but you only have time for so many. So you, you start ticking them off from the most significant, most profound, most important. Based on that principle, what should we start with? That's a great question. We're both lovers of meditation. Why don't we start there? You've probably been meditating for decades, right? Yeah. What I've been working on, particularly the last five years, is what a new contemplative system would look like calibrated to the needs of Westerners at this particular point in history. I feel like different contemplative systems arise based on the the needs of the moment and also the kinds of personalities that design the systems and have the realizations. I feel like we're at a unique juncture in history. So and not only that, we have the opportunity of having access to a number of pretty complete contemplative systems. So What I've been interested in is what I would call contemplative engineering, meaning once you understand the metacognitive and attentional dynamics behind a contemplative path, 
you can then begin to ask questions like, well, how, you know, what, what, what would the optimal path look like if you got to design it from the bottom up? That's kind of where my interest with meditation is right now. Yeah. And every single phrase you mentioned there popped a question into my mind. First of all, do you equate meditation with contemplation and how do you define contemplation? Well, contemplative practices, you know, in this Tibetan tradition, I think the term for meditation means like, means literally to familiarize yourself with a particular state. So that could include both attentional training, right? Which is a narrowing of the field, which leads to certain kinds of progressions of state and of concentration and, and of, of genres, if you will. And then you also have insight practices which are metacognitively examining the structures of mind, the self-structure, the attentional system, time and space, and seeing through those to recognize a, a deeper basis of operation. And, and then you have contemplative practices, which are just really about resting in the nature of mind, just naturally resting. And all of those are important because those are all different dimensions of the minds that we have. We want to cross-train the mind. As you may know, uh, you know, my path was transcendental meditation. I learned it back in the 60s, and I taught it for about 25 years. One of the things we always emphasized was that it was unique in that it didn't involve contemplation or concentration. But I'm not a drum beater for transcendental meditation. I'm obviously very eclectic in my appreciation of all the different paths that people can pursue, or I wouldn't be able to do this program. And mm -hmm. I've certainly talked to many people who have achieved tremendous results on all kinds of different paths. But when I was a teacher, the idea of contemplation or concentration, I had this bias that they were somehow not as effective because they would disallow transcending. They would keep the mind either entertaining something on the level of meaning, contemplation, mm -hmm. or they would agitate or hold the mind using concentration and disallow it from effortlessly slipping into the transcendent. Uh, how would you respond to those? Points? Those are great questions. Let's look at the transcendent afterwards. But first, if we, if we work with the attentional system, because what you're calling contemplation practice or what the Tibetans would call calm staying, is really about the, the stabilizing of the attentional system. And the attentional system is at the center of the self-structure. So the self, by that I mean Rick and, and John. And so since the self-structure maintains the continuity of the self by attending to the various dimensions of the self, sensations, thoughts, beliefs, all of that is maintained by the attentional system. And so if we don't attend to any of those things, then the self dissipates momentarily? Yeah. So if you use a practice where you don't deal with the attentional system, it's very easy to transcend the self and the attentional system. However, it doesn't necessarily transform the self-structure and the attentional system that's residing within the self. So if we want to have a practice that addresses all the levels of mind, all the levels of brain... We don't want to transcend and not include, because if you don't include the self-structure and its transformation, then essentially the self has been left out of the meditative technology. So in my mind, the function of contemplation practice has to do with the process of kind of bringing character development to its fruition, so to speak, and the unification of the sub-minds of the personality. And the centering of the self-structure 
within, let's say, the heart. And that's meant to be a realization that continues off the cushion. So that becomes a, a new basis of operation for the self-structure. And then we can have more transcendental practices that kind of leave from there. But the truth is, is we're always going to come back to the self-structure. So we don't want the, the self-structure not to be integrated into these practices. Otherwise, it gets left behind. Yeah. yeah, those are very good points. When I was teaching, the teaching was, if you transcend, everything else will be brought along, like pulling one leg of the table, all the other legs come, or like watering the root of a tree and all the leaves and branches flourish. But in practice, over the decades, and I, I underwent huge transformations as a result of my practice, but I, I've really come to the conclusion observing people in this community who have been practicing for decades that that's insufficient. There absolutely needs to be some kind of attention to ethical development, critical thinking skills, you know, various things that therapies or other kinds of methods could help to culture. Otherwise, a lot of those things just don't seem to go anywhere. And I'm, I'm reminded of Ken Wilber's lines of development theory, which we can throw in here at some point. I'm just dropping some notes down so I can hold this. So exactly, if you look at, let's say, the Tibetan, Indo-Tibetan tradition, it's a university tradition. And in the Mahayana, in the tradition of Maitreya, in the text by Maitreya, Maitreya points out, listen, the path of the Bodhisattva doesn't come online unless you engage in what they call the five other sciences, meaning that meditation itself wasn't enough for the kind of integral weaving of uh, epistemology, hermeneutics, ethics, medicine, psychology, that actually the path wasn't just about states, it was about traits, and traits involved the integration of ethics, motivation, psychology, into something that is much more well-woven together than just relying upon a meditative state. Right. And you would probably agree that just having states, like going into samadhi for a minute or two or something like that, does not necessarily bleed into the rest of your life and bring about a, a changed trait. It can, but why rely upon one line of development when you can rely upon five and have them woven together? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. What comes to mind here is the insights just around what Ken calls the fourth turning, or a number of people call the fourth turning, is the integration particularly of our Western psychodynamic understanding. So in my practice and my work with students, what I've come to see is how in order to stabilize trait development, in order to, for that stabilization to happen, there are various psychodynamic issues that need to be worked through. And the deepest ones are related to the attachment system. How safe does the psyche feel? Because if in the background, the psyche, there are issues from childhood, and you're suppressing them and you're transcending them, the attentional system is always going to be seeking in the background some kind of security. So if you don't address, if we use the language of the chakras, if you don't address the stability of the first chakra and the second and the third, which are where all the psychodynamic issues are, those lower chakras continue to drive cognitions and, and chitta-vrittis that you're then suppressing, when actually, rather than suppressing them, what needs to be addressed are those lacks, those issues that haven't been worked through. And when they're worked through, 
the attentional system is no longer searching for something and the ability to just stay and make those states into traits becomes a lot easier. Uh, please define chitta vrittis for the sake of the audience. Oh, the, the fluctuations of consciousness, the, of mind, of thought, and of energy. In most beginning meditators, as you know, struggle with a monkey mind, but most of the monkey mind is driven in the background by actually a sense of insecurity. You're probably aware of the second verse of the Yoga Sutras, Yoga Chitta Vritti Naroda, that yoga is the cessation of the Chitta Vrittis or the fluctuations of the mind. I had always kind of thought of that as being spontaneous and automatic as a result of transcending. But then again, even Patanjali, who wrote that, had a whole shopping list of different things that ought to be attended to if you really wanted to be successful. Yeah, and I think we need to re-examine that shopping list and ask ourselves, what have we learned in the last hundred years? Actually, what have we learned in maybe the last few thousand years as Westerners that support that process? Because clearly, as Westerners, we also have some insights into how the psyche works. Not all over there in the East. Yeah. So a broader question that's relevant to all this is, you know, we've seen over the last half century, or even earlier, if we count Yogananda, for instance, waves of Eastern teachers coming from that culture, mm. Tibetan or, or Buddhist or Hindu, and, you know, landing in the West uh, with varying degrees of integration and success. I mean, in, in some cases, it's been a total disaster. In other cases, it's been <laughs> kind of successful. And, um, you know, a lot of these people grew up in ashrams or monastic situations and then all of a sudden found themselves in a much more worldly venue and um, succumbed to those temptations, and that created all kinds of problems. So partly what I hear you saying is that we need to um, adapt and filter and modify these Eastern teachings in order to make them fit in the West and be more effective and successful. What worked in their milieu isn't necessarily going to work when it's transplanted here. Yeah, I do believe that if we look at what the pedagogical success, what the educational success was of these contemplative educational processes, whether it was Patanjali's Yoga Sutras or other systems, my sense is, is that they were really reserved for an elite. Very often a monastic elite. Right. Yeah. And so coming here to the West, these teachings are meeting a different kind of population. And a lot of issues can be quietened down in an ashram or a monastery. But you can or ignored or avoided. Well, that's what I meant. You can be right. make it be ignored. As a father, you know, with two teenage nothing can be ignored. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the opportunity of that is not just really about integrating the East and adapting it. It's actually building new contemplative systems that really are fundamentally an integration of Eastern and Western from the ground up. Yeah. So I suppose that would work both ways. Absolutely. The Eastern teachers could come here and be supplemented or augmented with various Western systems and then transplanted back to the East and be of even greater benefit there than they were before. I think so. I really believe that. You know, one thing, of course, is, that is interesting is just around um, you know, meditation research, which over the last 15 years has just shot way up. I don't know, 99% of it is on Eastern practices. 
in my mind, there is a psychological shadow there that the West has around not really understanding the depth of our own esoteric tradition. And that also needs to be resolved because if you don't really understand where we've come from, you know, if we don't understand our own history, then it's difficult to also kind of move forward into, into the future. Well, what is our Western esoteric tradition? When I think of that, I think of the transcendentalists, but they got it from the East, maybe sure. mystical Christianity or something. Well, mystical Christianity, as a European, I mean, grew up in, grew up in the UK. You know, if you and I were having these conversations 300 years ago, 400 years ago, whether, you know, we would be part of whether it was the Rosicrucians or the, or the Freemasons or the alchemists. And all the way back to like the Greek mysteries, you know, the Eleusian mysteries, the Dionysian uh-huh. mysteries. I think it's important for Westerners to understand how we lost our own indigenous traditions. I mean, and this is where my interest in psychedelics comes from, because honestly, I, I believe that that was always a part of the Western traditions until they were taken out by the Romans. We're at an interesting time in history where not only do we have access to all the contemplative traditions of the East, but there are also some significant traditions of the West that have been hiding because they had to hide either from the church and then they kind of hid from science because, you know, no one likes to be laughed at. Yeah. And as you just alluded, not only traditions of European origin, such as the Rosicrucians and and all that, but indigenous, Native American, South American, and so on has all kinds of stuff there, including psychedelics, as you just mentioned. But it's vast, of course. There's so many different things. How do you distill it all into practical applications without Mm -hmm. being guilty of the trying to dig 10 different wells syndrome? Yes. I mean, I think that that's where some degree of mastery in one or two systems and some degree of knowledge around these things is helpful. Yeah. There's always a danger of doing that and then have slapping something together. But, you know, in my mind, if you approach it from a psychological perspective, from understanding the cognitive and metacognitive and the affective motivation, where you understand it from the science side and, and then look at how these practices differ and how they are similar. My teacher, Dr. Daniel Brown, who passed away recently, he wrote a book with uh, Ken Wilber, maybe in the late 80s, I think it was, or Transformations of Consciousness. Did you ever read that? I read something when I interviewed him, but it was probably something more recent that he had written. I forget what I might have read. So way back back when, what Dr. Dan did was analyze, look at the deep structure of three different Buddhist traditions. Actually, no, it was two different Buddhist traditions, the Mahamudra, the Vishuddha Maga, and then Patanjali Yoga Sutras. So basically with the analysis of a contemplative psychologist looking at the cognitive and the metacognitive dynamics that are going in. So it's kind of like looking under the hood, looking at the nature of the path, looking at the stages, looking at what those stages are doing, and then converting them all into a neutral psychological language and then work out, oh, this is where they're similar. So once you have a a technical language that allows you to translate these traditions out of their own vernacular and into a neutral technical language, then you can start to compare and contrast. And from that, that's when you can begin to get a sense of, well, what's the deep design? So once you do that with, let's say, the Buddhist traditions, then 
once you get a sense of that deep structure from that place, you can then begin to slowly move out and look at other paths and look at their deep structures. And slowly but surely, that tree begins to reveal itself. So I think it has to, obviously, has to be done with intelligence. But it's a work that I think has been underway for the last 40 years, to some extent. I imagine there will always be a plethora of different spiritual practices that people will do all over the world, following their natural inclinations or their cultural upbringing and so on. I think what you're saying is, you know, you want to make available something which um, is readily known, it's not just some hidden esoteric thing, which will be really effective if people engage with it. And Westerners, Westerners, of course, yeah. We probably haven't designed a contemplative system. I mean, there's a contemplative prayer, Father Thomas. Centering prayer, yeah. Centering prayer, thank you. Yeah, centering prayer. But we haven't here in the West had a new contemplative system for a while. And in my mind, like the Western tradition, the kind of Western tradition that I feel connected to is kind of the, the Gnostic Alexandria, where you meet a number of streams of meeting, and it's about a kind of scientific inquiry around, well, what's the common denominator here between these various traditions and using logic and using hermeneutics and epistemology to get a sense of what's the best thing for us to be practicing. For the sake of the audience, would you please define hermeneutics and epistemology? Understanding, you know, how do we interpret experience? Understanding how we interpret what it means to be a human being? Understand how we interpret texts? Basically, if we apply the social sciences and the psychological sciences to looking at these various streams that are coming to us in these various contemplative traditions, in my mind, part of the Western tradition is looking and studying with more of a scientific approach of like, well, how does that work? And how does that work? And and what's the similarity here? And then from that, developing technology, which is what we do without the technologies. I mean, we're very good at that. I think for some reason, for the last 500,000 years, 2,000 years, haven't been engaged with internal technologies in the same way. But there's no reason that we can't be. Right, at least in the West we haven't. That's right. And in the East they have. I mean, granted, there's always going to be traditions, but in my mind, the Western tradition of inquiry and science and refinement, that's something important, even in this dimension. I agree. And it's, it's a topic that excites me. I gave a whole talk on it at the SAND conference one year just about the ways in which science and spirituality could enrich and support and supplement one another if they were to collaborate properly. And to its credit, of course, Eastern spirituality has had a rather scientific approach compared to Western religions. They don't expect you to just believe something. They might tell you some things and say, okay, now experiment and see if you can prove it for yourself. It's true. But what I have noticed, which is, I mean, this is a generalization, is that tends to be within a particular system. So let's say this is one system, let's say Patanjali's or Vishuddhamaga, which is the uh, an insight system, or Dzogchen or Mahamudra or Tantras. But rarely do you say, well, okay, well, this is one system. And if you follow it, it works. And this is another system. You can follow it, it works. And now let's take all those systems and take those systems to pieces and see how do these components work? Is this a good component compared to that component? And then, you know, you put them together and you run them. You're like, oh, that works a bit better. 
except for, let's say, the really great masters, like in Tibet, where you begin to see that kind of creativity. Generally, you don't see that kind of creativity. On the other hand, in the West, we have the other idea that, oh, you're going to be creative immediately. And then everybody, <laughs> everybody hangs out their shingle. And that happened in yoga. Everyone's got their own kind of yoga. But it doesn't have to happen like that. You can look at these things through a serious perspective, talk with people who've really mastered them, master a couple of systems, and then from that place, get a sense of what works and what doesn't. And of course, at least in my own journey, part of that is also being informed, if you will, by something that wants to come from the future. That it's kind of saying, listen, these are the plans, right? These are the stats. Here's the blueprint. Go and get that piece and go and get that piece and put these things together. So there's also that piece as well. Yeah, I have a question in the back of my mind about this future point. But before I ask that thing you just said a minute ago, if these traditions, especially Eastern traditions, are supposed to be about knowing what reality is, knowing what the self is, knowing what the ultimate reality, Brahman or whatever is, experientially, then one could ask, well, if you pursue all these different things, Hindu and Buddhist and all the different variations of those, are you going to end up all at the same place, like paths up a mountainside? Or are people all going to be experiencing something different according to which path they took, in which mm -hmm. case it would seem that none of the paths is really working, or at least because no. you're really supposed to arrive. I mean, you'd like to think that all the great adepts of all traditions, Eastern and Western, could get together in a room with Google Translate or something and be in complete agreement with one another because they'd all arrived mm -hmm. at the ultimate truth. Well, I think generally there's two pieces. One is around the kind of perspectives that the meditator takes. For instance, there's a very similar level of practice in the Yoga Sutras compared to the Buddhist tradition. It's a level of practice where you're beginning to just look at how experiences unfold. As I understand it in the Yoga Sutra tradition, it's about ekatattva, which is about the unfolding of experience like a stream, like a flow. And you can look at experience as if it's a flow. And a lot of the Hindu traditions do, including the Kashmir Shaiva tradition. And you can also look at your experience as kasanaka, which is the Buddhist perspective, which is momentary. Now, of course, light is both a particle and a wave. And this is what these two guys were saying. The Buddhists were saying, no, 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 it's a particle. And the Hindus were going, no, 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 it's a wave. And yes, it's true. If you look at it as a wave, it'll appear as a wave. If you look at it as a particle, you'll see it as a particle. Part of a planetary tradition would be to be able to say, hey, Rick, look at it as a wave and it will do this. Look at it as a particle, it'll do this. Look at it as a wavicle, it'll do this. So built into understanding that planetary contemplative science is understanding the contexts of these different traditions. And not only that, but also the context of the type of meditator, meaning you know, like typology. So if you have a master, for instance, I have a suspicion that some of the great masters of the concentration traditions had Asperger's. These are dudes who could sit down and like narrow their mind and not move for three days. <laughs> and then, okay. And then when they come out of meditation and they write out the cartography, all the other monks in the monastery are like, oh my God, I can't do that. This guy is amazing. I've sometimes well, said of myself that OCD can be your friend, you know, because I've well, been so regular in my meditation for all these well, that's decades. Right. Well, that's right. <laughs> 
you know, over the last 30 years, I've looked at as well, look at who is the teacher. Jung produces Jungian psychology. Freud produces Freudian psychology. Who the person is and their typology expresses itself as a particular kind of path. Now, once we understand that, we can begin to say, oh, okay, that gives us an understanding of what an integral path might look at because we're no longer bound by type. We can begin to work out what would be an integral approach which would integrate the insights of a number of different types. You know, usually it's a bell curve, right? So it's a super devotional kind of sadhana, kind of practice. Maybe it works great for people who have open hearts and who are, you know, natural bhaktis. But if that's not your thing, then no. If you've got a really good concentration, and that can be a psychodynamic thing, meaning, you know, you can have developed really strong concentration as a child because you just didn't want to be bothered <laughs> by anybody, right? So that's a facet. Then you have people like jhana yoga practices, where it's all about intelligence, and people who got super sharp minds can penetrate just through koans, through metacognitive questioning. So understanding the various kinds of typologies, super important to getting a sense of, well, hang on, what would be something that integrates all typologies, if you will? Yeah. And would you necessarily need to integrate them all? Or would you naturally have people who pursue different typologies, as you call them, or different practices according to their nature, devotional or intellectual or more action-oriented karma yoga kind of thing? That's a possibility. I think that some of the different typologies are like natural, and some of them come out of psychodynamic conflict. Some of them come out of actually developmental trauma. And the way that I'm going to adapt to my developmental trauma is by being really nice. Or the way I'm going to adapt to my developmental trauma is by being really clever or what have you. If the person then continues along that line, I don't think that that's their natural aptitude. I think that that's their character structure. And so to some extent, I think there is a universal process of going back to some fundamentals. Everybody has a body, for instance. And so this is where the attachment piece comes in. The sense of security and or the necessity for psychological security, which at the most fundamental level comes online when the infant is born and just grabs hold of matter, of mother. Um, that's a universal. And of course, to some extent, people are able to internalize secure attachment or unsecure. So there are certain dynamics that should be addressed universally. In my mind, a path let's say like a degree program, you want to move through some general requirements and then you get to a place where specialization is actually a choice rather than specialization is a habit. Well, in terms of regular education, we all pretty much go through the same things up until a certain point. And then maybe when we get to high school, we start taking elective courses and some of us are more into math and some into exactly music yeah. or whatever. I guess you're saying that does that correlate with the spiritual path? I mean, are there certain fundamentals that you want to build a foundation with and then you can been diversify or specialize after those have been laid down? Well, I don't differentiate between psychological development and spiritual development. As a psychologist and someone who's interested in the dynamics of the human psyche, in my mind, 
sacred practice is a dimension of education, as it was, let's say, in the Gurukula, in Hindu culture. So the way that I look at this is like, well, if we're going to bring these traditions and embed them into the West in a deep way, we are curious here about them as part of educational systems. So what does that look like when you begin the contemplative journey at seven and based on what's possible at seven and then moving through a curriculum so that by the time you get to, as you said, high school, you're beginning to get a sense of what your natural aptitude is. That's how I am seeing how in a hundred years, that's how it's going to be. Yeah, I think that's so important. All the problems we're having in society could be so much less if children were able to begin unfolding their full inner potential or spiritual potential as part of their regular education. And there are some examples of that. The David Lynch Foundation, which is headed by a good friend of mine, has been getting TM into inner city schools. And Caverly Morgan, who's been on Bat Gap, is doing a lot with Buddhist practices in schools out west in Oregon and so on. But these are tiny efforts compared to the millions of kids who are in school. And usually they're met with opposition by fundamentalist Christians, so they don't get too far. Well, I mean, this is where the full translation of these sacred technologies into a neutral language that allows for them to be described in terms of metacognitive perspective taking and affective positive state development. That's where that piece is really important. Yeah. Maharshi tried to do that with the science of creative intelligence, as he called it. And it was in New Jersey public schools for a while, some of them. But the only problem was he insisted that if people are going to learn meditation, there has to be a puja. <laughs> and <Yeah>. so <laughs> it ended up in court and got tossed out right. of the schools. Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, I recognize in, in TM movement, you know, huge movements to try and bring this about. In my mind, the reason why it's going to work much better if it's at a round table and TM is one of them at the table. Yeah. And then from that round table, you then develop what a Western tech would look like. And you have buy-in from the Buddhists and you have buy-in from TM and you have buy-in from these other things. Otherwise, it's your you know precious, this is my sacred cow. No, 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 this is my sacred cow. You know, no, it's mindful, no, it's TM. No, it should be collaborative and cooperative. It's much like if we're going to put a man on the moon, which we can do, that involves technology and involves understanding how multiple pieces of tech fit together. I think the and they say no one knows how we did it, actually. No one person could have uh, no, that's, that's right. contained all the knowledge of what no. got us to the moon because there's too that's much. Right. That's right. I think it's the same thing here, Rick. It needs that kind of approach. You know, one of the things that we're looking into at Karuna, my organization, is, as we're getting the funding, is to build an educational K-12 model, which has that built into it right from the beginning, but that the contemplative practice at the beginning addresses the attachment system. Because you can concentrate on a number of different things. You can concentrate on a mantra. You can concentrate on your breath. But you can also concentrate on like the fundamental psychological dynamics that create safety, security, and trust. And then once those are uploaded, if you will, you can then move to the next chakra and work on the next center, so to speak, and work on meditating on what it feels like to be deeply felt. A child internalizes the capacity for self-regulation by being felt 
by another nervous system, by an adult's nervous system. So to the extent that you can actually retrain people to meditate on, oh, that's what it feels like to be felt by somebody else. What you're redoing there is you're reawakening the very mechanism that actually allows for inner regulation. And if you meditate on that, then the nervous system becomes reorganized and then we can move our way up to, let's say, the next stage. So that rather than having to transcend these various dynamics, we're using contemplative technology to heal the attachment system, to heal and strengthen the sense of self. If the sense of self is, is healed and strong and there's strong self-esteem, it quietens down really easy. It's when there's conflict. So it's this kind of meeting of contemplative science, psychology with the traditions, those pieces coming together that allows for us to give birth to something new. Yeah. And we were talking about Western technologies and traditions, and some of those are rather modern. Like, for instance, Jeffrey Martin and Shinzen Young are doing things with some kind of thing that magnetically stimulates parts of the brain. And Shinzen said it's, he's had the best experiences in his entire spiritual career <laughs> as a result of this thing. That's a piece of it. But in my mind, I always go back to human development. How we unfold, I think a lot of the reasons why like growth slows down is not because we don't have enough 580 hertz being pumped into our brains, but it's because we get to a certain point and then the anchors that are pulling us to our complex trauma from our childhood, that's what slows development down. Yeah. And that gets cleaned up, then naturally the human being starts to unfold. We're wired to unfold. Yeah. Like, that's the perspective that I take. That's a good point. Yeah, we are. I think probably a lot of the difficulties in society is that that natural tendency to unfold, as you put it, is thwarted, is not allowed to unfold. And so people feel so frustrated and they're all dying of fentanyl overdoses on Prozac or whatever. A large percentage of the population are doing these things because they're all so frustrated in a deep way, not allowed to blossom. No, we're not allowed to blossom. I mean, that's why in some ways I feel like, well, as Westerners, we have to come up with our contemplative solution. We've been given so many gifts, and I think it's time for turn the wheel of Dharma again. Let's give it another shot. It's a tricky thing, at least in the U.S., in terms of integrating it into the public schools, because we have the separation of church and state. And whenever anything like this comes in, as I mentioned earlier, you know, fundamentalists begin to to squawk. Um, so. And, and it wouldn't be enough to say, okay, you can come in and alter the Buddhists and, and the Hindus and everybody else, and we'll all get around the table. Because then the atheists would say, no, separation of church and state, you can't do this. Keep it all out of here. So yeah. there's going to have to yeah. be some big changes somehow, even constitutional, perhaps, this to be more widespread. Well, I feel like that's where psychology comes in. That's where contemplative psychology comes in, which is, let's translate all of these terms out of Sanskrit. And don't get me wrong, like, I love Sanskrit. I love Sanskrit. But to the extent that they are all converted into psychological terms, then we have something that we can work with. As long as it's, well, this comes from Buddhism and this comes from Hinduism and this comes from Christianity, I think that you're right. But if this is already a contemplative psychology that integrates the best of the insights of the East and the West in its own language, Western psychological language, which is, you know, phenomenological in the sense that 
rather than talking about using states like the absolute or Brahman or the Atman. The terms you used to describe are phenomenological terms like the openness of experience or uh, vividness or lucidity or intimacy. If you're using terms that are more related to the direct experience rather than a technical language of a particular tradition, at least that's where I find that we, that, that we have success. Yeah, well, it would seem that if so, the Western terminology is going to have to become a lot more nuanced and complex and sophisticated because, you know, yeah. the old example of the Inuits have 30 names for snow and we have one, basically. You know, if we really wanted to talk to an Inuit about snow, we'd have to find English equivalents for all their names. So I guess the question is, can we really distill the best out of all the Eastern traditions and couch them in Western terms devoid of Hindu or Buddhist trappings Mm -hmm. without watering them down and making them less effective? Yeah, absolutely. You feel we can? Well, that's what my doctoral work was on. My doctoral work was on essentially... I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> what have you been smoking? <laughs> it was on metacognition, ego development, and contemplative psychology. This is like describing what are the what are the metacognitive mechanisms of ego development all the way from early on and then all the way up and showing how at a certain point these contemplative meditative operations kick in actually, you can see that they are part of a singular developmental process. And I don't have to, you know, you don't have to even use a religious language to do that. It's a human developmental process. You might have to somehow coin new terms. Yes. And defi- for instance, I don't know if there's an English equivalent for Brahman, which is just basically the, the totality and the ultimate reality. And so unless we want to say unified field in physics, which is what the TM movement tried to do, but then that's controversial whether there's actually an equivalence. But anyway, we have, like with the snow example, our lexicon is rather limited compared to the traditions we're trying to bring in. I don't think it has to be. Okay, so we can coin new terms and define them. Well, well, and you define terms that are also, so what is the direct experience of Brahman? Not what is Brahman, but the direct experience of it. Yeah. And then when you use the descriptors of that, you begin to get a set, you know, like, oh, like, fundamental unbounded wholeness right the experience of a state of being where there is no center it's like a circle with no center and no circumference like radical wholeness there are ways of describing these experiences that are the language that if you use that descriptor a mystic from five different traditions would be able to nod their head Sure. Right. And hopefully you can not have to have a whole paragraph in order to describe it. Whereas in mm-hmm. India, they might just say Brahman. They know what you're talking about. Yeah. Once we have a contemplative psychology that's well built, then these terms begin to mean something. You know, the sign of any sophisticated technology is a sophisticated terminology. But just because we don't have one isn't a reason not to develop one. Oh, absolutely. Right. So... You've mentioned the word the future in terms mm-hmm. of how you, you know, you have a vision for how this all might develop and you've sure. mentioned how things might be a hundred years from now and so on. If you could envision, which you probably have, you've probably envisioned the ideal of what you'd like to see this develop into. 
what percent do you feel has been achieved in developing it? Like, are we at just a 5% level in terms of what you hope to see happen or, or what? Well, that's a great question. I experience reality is unfolding like a flower. And so what percentage is it, has it unfolded? Well, it's never going to stop unfolding. So I guess the question for me is to what degree are we aligned with that unfolding process? For a long time, part of the issue has been like resources, getting funding to move these things through. I'm full of hope. And at the same time, I am aware of a, a, a real dire sense of urgency. Yeah, me too. In the sense that we have this fourth industrial revolution rolling out. And if we don't have a fourth turning of the Dharma to meet it, which is as sophisticated as the outer technologies, yeah, I don't want to look at that future. So we also have the sixth great mass extinction happening. Another way of looking at it. You know, the last year I've noticed a speeding up of synchronicity in the projects that I've been doing and the projects that my colleagues have been doing. And so that for me is always a good sign of, is the wind blowing? Is the, the human psyche unfolding? Yes. I'm like, this is, I think that things are moving in a way that, that I feel good about. Yeah, I do um, too. On your website, Samadhi Integral, there's a headline saying the world needs us to awaken to our true nature. And that's just what you're saying here. And it is urgent, I think, as you say. And I have a feeling that it's happening and not merely by virtue of the efforts that people like you and I and many others are making. It's happening because it's just a shift in world consciousness that's independent of individual contributions to it. There's some kind of an upwelling in, of consciousness in the world. I don't know whether we're getting zapped by subtle energy from the center of the galaxy or what's happening, but I do think it's quickening, as you said, and I think that it may have a couple of different effects. You know, they, they say how a rising tide lifts all boats. I think people who are putting themselves in the stream of this rising consciousness will feel continually uplifted, but I think those who fail to raise the anchor of their boat may end up capsizing. And we can see a lot of chaos in the world. Yes. In my perspective, part of what you're describing is, has to do with the cosmology of what we're talking about. I think one of the challenges, at least that I see with, let's say, Tibetan Buddhist practitioners is um, they have access to this amazing psychotechnology, but the cosmology hasn't been interpreted into what is a Western variation of that cosmology that is essentially the cosmology of the perennial traditions. And so what you're sharing is that the way I see it is, is that Gaia is a multidimensional being. We are hosted within the various dimensions of this being. And those dimensions include the heavenly realms, if you will, the, the astral dimensions. And so Gaia as a sentient intelligence is also at a particular level of its spiritual practice. And the humanity, if you will, is a reflection of that. It's a little confused. <laughs> There's a lot of fleas on the dog and guy is scratching. <laughs> yeah. But that kind of awakening to this kind of interconnected field and the kind of synchronic dimension of that where 
those kinds of insights are being transmitted simultaneously to our whole species, in my mind, is because that's a dimension of the planet waking up. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about the Kama Datu and the Dharma Datu. These are various descriptors of these cosmological layers, planes, if you will. Well, Datu translates in Ayurvedic medicine as tissue. So in my mind, Gaia is a multidimensional being with multidimensional tissues. And these tissues go through cycles of maturity, just like you and I do. And we're at a moment now where a particular tissue is awakening. And of course, you can't stop that. But that is a force of nature. And of course, you're right that those human beings who are holding on to the ways of seeing the world, it's going to be really uncomfortable for certain people because if that is happening as part of the field itself, but you're not in touch with any sort of teaching or skill set to help you make that transition inside to align with that, that's going to cause you to probably tighten up even more. Yeah. And and if you can afford it, get yourself an underground bunker in Montana and lots of bunker food, down, and, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a verse in the Gita where Lord Krishna says, when a Dharma flourishes and Dharma is in decay, I take birth age after age, basically mm-hmm. to restore Dharma. And we could translate that into just sort of an influx of higher consciousness or divine consciousness or whatever, like you were just saying, in terms of Gaia waking up. And, you know, like we've just said with the crises that are happening in the world, environmental and, you know, extinction of species and, and all the rest. Many people realistically predict that we're just not going to be around much longer as a species if we continue the way we're we're going. So I sort of feel that there's an intelligence to nature that is responding to the crisis we've created. And the, the antidote might be bitter for some people, as we've been alluding to here, but it could save us. Yeah, I also feel like the outer circumstances and the inner circumstances are inseparable. It's a non-dual reality. So the crisis, this is a crisis in the interior of ourselves individually, in the interior of culture, and in the exterior, in the financial systems and ecological systems. The whole thing is, in my mind, I mean, this is the reason why meditative practice is so important, and particularly developing a new path where it's explicitly articulated how the metacognitive dimension of meditation facilitates higher levels of cognition. So part of my work is is the integration of East and West. Not only is it about the metacognitive dimension, whether that's through meditation, but as that shifts, new capacity for cognition comes on. The capacity for systemic thought. I mean, they did research on this, the TM folks, in terms of the effect of TM meditation on ego development. Right. Skip Alexander, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So now we have, now that material on ego development has actually gone further. So now, now we're actually have a, a larger scale and that scale of ego development now really goes into the spiritual realms. And it also shows us that the capacity for multi-systemic cognition and then paradigmatic cognition and then multi-paradigmatic cognition comes online along with this metacognitive capacity for being the field for whatever term you want to for a trait capacity from meditative development 
You might need to define some of those terms or we're going to lose some of the audience, you know, even metacognition and paradigmatic cognition. You might want to flesh it out a little bit. Okay, planning this. So obviously what metacognition means is there's metacognitive thinking, which will be thinking about thinking. So you get to a certain level of development where in adolescence, what we call formal operational thinking, where you can start thinking about, am I going to think about, am I going to think about this this way? Or am I going to think about it that way? What do I believe? I mean, do I believe religion or what's my political affiliation? What do I think? You know, that kind of stuff. Even the capacity to do that, 30% of the population can't even do that cognitive operation. They don't have enough perspectival capacity to be able to ask themselves that question. So contemplative metacognition would be, for instance... They kind of believe what they're told and just go with the crowd. Basically, because developmentally, they don't have third-person perspective yet. Right. They only have second-person perspective. Which and I might add that they're often frightened into believing differently. Their pastor might say, you know, if you start huh. thinking outside the box that I'm creating here for you, it's the devil that's, that's tempting you. Well, generally, second-person perspective in any culture, in any situation, is them and us. It's called concrete operational, black and white. Are you in? Are you out? And so it's very fear-based. It's highly susceptible to fear. Third-person perspective, objectivity, is much more rational and, and can agree upon, you and I can agree upon a third thing as being that measuring device says 3.5, you see 3.5, I see 3.5, that's 3.5. What metacognitive awareness is, is the ability to take perspective on your experience, not by thinking, but, but with awareness. Many meditative instructions are metacognitive instructions. So for instance, bring your awareness and notice the ongoing flow of sensations in your body. You're bringing your awareness and you're having it look at something. Or keep looking at those sensations and begin to notice how those sensations are going in and out, that they're not stable. It's another kind of, okay, now examine the boundaries of what you think is a solid structure of your body and notice how the boundaries are pulsing, that they're insubstantial, that they are constructed. So that kind of looking, that is a metacognitive activity. It's not thought, you're doing it with awareness. So all the various kinds of meditative injunctions are metacognitive injunctions. Look at this in this way. Look at this in this way. And of course, every path has a sequence of metacognitive injunctions. Look at the mantra this way. Look at the breath this way. So that's what metacognition is, is is like taking a perspective, a meta-perspective on your experience. And not only is that important in meditation, but it's vitally important in psychological development. So for instance, the kind of psychopathology that, let's say, a borderline injury or a narcissistic injury, In both of those instances, there's a particular lack of the mind to do a particular kind of metacognitive perspective taking. For instance, people who have a borderline injury are able to be aware of their experience, but they're not able to be aware of their experience in such a way that it organizes their experience. That's a different kind of way of of being with, with experience. You can look at experience like I'm looking at you. You can just stare at your experience. That isn't the same thing as relating to your experience that organizes it. Mm. 
In the case of some somehow yeah. reminds me of Robert Burns' poem where he said something like, uh, "Oh, would some god the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us?" Because a, a narcissist, as I have seen some on the national stage, seems to be oblivious to what a clown they are, and you know, just kind of blind to their own behavior. In a narcissistic injury, what never happened metacognitively. When I say it never happened. Let's say you're like four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and somebody never said to you, "Rick, how do you feel? Rick, what do you think about this? Rick, how do you feel about these things?" So, if somebody cognitively never gave you an operation, which was like, "Oh, I need to reflect right now on my、uh-huh. inner experience," if that never happened to you, your mind cannot do that. So you haven't learned to be self-referral or self-reflective or introspective. You literally, literally can't take that perspective. So,、right. you know, if if you when you see people who have narcissistic disorders, literally they don't know how to be aware of their own experience. Right. They're just auto-directed. No introspection. No self-referral. No yeah. So that is a metacognitive damage, right? So you can see how important. Metacognition. Now that process goes all the way up. So, for instance, I could say that not recognizing Brahman is a kind of narcissistic injury at the most fundamental level of not recognizing the fundamental nature of reality. You could say perhaps that you haven't been able to probe to the core of your being. Something is blocking it, or it hasn't been pointed out to you. Yeah, although、right. pointing out could be more than a matter of pointing it out because it takes some inner exploration. Well, in the Tibetan tradition, these things are called pointing out instructions. They are metacognitive instructions, much like you know, John, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling good. John, notice is there a boundary in your visual perception between inside and outside? No, I can't find one. And when, of course, you repeat. The injunction, John. Can you find a boundary inside or out? No, I can't find one. John, how do you feel today? Oh, I feel good. How do you? It gets habitual. It gets clearer. It gets wired in as a perspective, as a way of functioning, as a way of functioning. And and if it's part of the education of how people grow up, the only reason why we don't do this is because it's just not part of our education. If I say to my son, Bodhi, do you recognize the fundamental openness of reality? He's like, Yeah, Dad. Whatever. Let me play my video game. That's part of it. <laughs> so you asked. So I was. So metacognition is fundamental. The fundamental building blocks of the psyche very early on, but it goes all the way up, and so that's one dimension. So let's say as the sense of identity becomes disembedded from thought. So most people's sense of identity. Is fused to the attentional system, which is fused into thought. But as that disembedding process happens, and as that becomes stabilized as a trait, which, as you know, it, it does if you practice, it's stabilized. Well, what changes then is how cognition arises within that field changes. Because if you're no longer holding on to thought, like Gollum holding on to his precious, if we're no longer holding on to thought, and it's suddenly released in the field. The movement of thought is synchronized with that very dynamic that's happening on the planet, because thought is impersonal. It's an expression of a planetary sheath, a planetary tissue. 
In other words, you become aligned with the sort of planetary dharma or the higher consciousness that's attempting to awaken on the planet, and you become an instrument of that due to that alignment. That's right. And it has a cognitive dimension to it as well. Meaning? Meaning it has a capacity. It thinks. Not only is higher consciousness non-conceptual, it's also conceptual. The idea that meditation is about no thinking that is only necessary at a point where you have to learn how to get beyond thought. But once that's stabilized, there's no great thing about having no thoughts. Well, you can have no thoughts and thoughts at the same time, actually, because you have different dimensions. Exactly. And so as that becomes more stable, these more creative, more reflective, and higher perspectival capacity, cognition, comes online. And that's what I meant. Those ways of thinking are going to come up with the solutions in ecology, finance, medicine, psychology. Oh, that's that a great can... point. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. So what you're saying, I'm just translating it so um, yeah. to make sure I understand what you're saying, and maybe it'll help the audience. There's a cognitive element in the higher consciousness that's dawning on the planet that if you can align yourself with that consciousness, you can partake of that cognitive element and wisdom and creative ideas can come through you as though you were a channel or a conduit for those. Like I sometimes think of guys like Steven Spielberg, you know, who makes some great movie and all of a sudden it'll waken everybody up to the possibility of extraterrestrials or something. And Mm -hmm. I have a feeling like, okay, that's not just Steven Spielberg. He is somehow channeling an idea that has to be enlivened in collective consciousness. Absolutely. In my mind, the next clear stage or trait in human development, because often if you try and shoot too high, you actually go too low. It's not ready for that. It's not ready for that. It's not operational. So then all you do is sit under a tree with a smile on your face, and it's like (laughs) not very useful. (laughs) Good for you, maybe. (laughs) So the next stage, you know, if I use technical language, you might, you know, using the vernacular I used, the Buddhic plane or the meta aware tier of development, its capacity, it is disembedded from thought. It's the ability to kind of reside in that field-like state of being. But it is the nature of that particular field. It is the information transmission system of the planet, meaning synchronicity. The factor of synchronicity is how that level of cognition works. First thing, the technical term in Buddhism is valid, non-conceptual, direct cognition. So there's a technical term for a way of knowing where it's no longer stored in memory. It's stored on the cloud, so to speak. And you're not pulling up based on the past. You're pulling up based on now. But you're accessing an intuitional field. But it isn't a gut intuition. It's the heart field. The information field of that synchronicity flows on universal love. So to the extent that your practice has opened up your bodhicitta, your heart, is to the extent that that synchronicity begins to become more and more readily available, not only in the outer life, which would be how the planet is kind of talking with you, but also in cognition, the thought itself begins to become synchronistic. It begins to become intuitive. It begins to like be an expression, as you said, of the field itself. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Again, to translate it into my terminology, just so to have another spin on it. 
the wisdom in the field, in nature's intelligence, if we can attune to that field, then we become a conduit for that wisdom. And so, you know, we're able to appreciate and they're not coming from your own gut, as you say, they're coming from the God's gut. And we're able to uh, reflect or channel higher knowledge that really wants to come through. And it may be philosophical, spiritual, psychological kind of knowledge, or it might be better solar panels or some battery that lasts forever, different things like that, that really have to come. And according to your aptitude, you're going to bring it through whatever you're best suited to bring through. Yeah. And if it's somatic intelligence, you're an amazing improvisational dancer. And if it's, you know, you're you're another Beethoven or something. Well, that's right. The multiple intelligences of that meta aware tier of that Buddhic dimension and Buddhic here, like Buddhic as a bodhisattva, the awakening. I like how you say these are people who are awakening. So the the difference between a Buddha and and a Bodhi Bodhi is awakening and a Buddha is awakened. So this dimension is the awakening dimension where the human beings become an awakening synchronized with the awakening process of the planet. The planet is awakening. It's that dimension of the planet which is awakening. Speaking of Beethoven, I just want to mention one quick thing. So I interviewed a guy named Stephen Cope a couple of years ago who was at um, Kripalu Institute, I think. And he had written a book about Dharma, and he was talking about a number of famous people throughout history that who lived their Dharma, and he mentioned Beethoven, and Beethoven had a difficult life and at times wanted to end it, but he just had this compelling feeling like there was this great music that had to come through him, and mm-hmm. he couldn't cop out. He had to stay on the planet in order to bring it through. Based on what you were just saying now, we're kind of alluding vaguely to rare individuals who have achieved some exalted state of consciousness who can really reflect collective consciousness like we're talking. But imagine jump to, you know, having 90% of the population functioning this way and what the world might be like. I thought that's doable. Part of what needs to change is the pedagogy of how we're going to deliver these teachings. They can't be delivered to, yes, adults, but we have to think about how to fundamentally rebuild education in such a way that the children and the parents simultaneously go through an educational process. Do you have your um, kids in public schools? Do you self-school do. them, homeschool yeah, them? Well, they did uh, the Waldorf system for a while. But unfortunately, my sense is, is Waldorf was calibrated for the 1920s and 30s. And so that's problematic because you need an update. Gosh, Rudolf Steiner, I believe that was the yes, that's right. yeah. yeah, my kids are in public school. It's difficult to fight that. But the cultural influence that flows through the schools is um Yeah, so how do you deal with that? At home you have this heavy emphasis on spiritual development, you and your wife, and the kids are out there in public school. I guess that was the journey that I went on. I wasn't born in Nashville. Yeah, that's true. You didn't turn out so bad. Right? So that's right. So the secret is not introduce any of this stuff to them. Oh, no, no, no. We just, and then slowly but surely, like my, my uh, 15 year old daughter went on her first meditation retreat and she came back and she was like, these are my people. Now, had I tried, she was like so excited because finally she's super relational. And finally there's a bunch of teenagers. She went with a IB knee. And they're sitting down and they're sharing and they're meditating together. It was a revelation. She came out with a beaming smile. 
So I think you've got to be really skillful about that. Yeah. Kind of like Tom Sawyer. No, you wouldn't want to paint this fence. I better do it. You know, it's really important. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Exactly. The thing about parenting, obviously, it's a role that never ends. I think you just have to not seed too many allergies right now. Obviously, if we have a different kind of educational system where they are doing that with their peers, I think what I saw with my daughter's case is, and actually this is also true for adults, is the sharing in the contemplative space, which is so important. The way that we actually stabilize at least kind of culture at this next tier of development is through communication. Most people aren't used to talking whilst in an altered state. They're not used to stabilizing their meditation and communicating to other people because it is communication that creates the community and the communion. Integration is the name of the game. You and I are talking in an altered state right now. Well, we wouldn't call it an altered state. It's it's our normal way of functioning. But after decades of practice, it's just natural. It's a second nature. I sometimes say to people, if I could snap from where I am now to my normal style of functioning 50 years ago, even though I was able to function okay then, relatively speaking, I'd die. I mean, the contrast would be, would be so huge. <laughs> And conversely, if I were snapping from there to now, suddenly I would probably just be rolling on the floor, drooling with bliss and wouldn't be able to do anything. So we acclimate. That's right. Yeah. I think what I was trying to say is one of the things I'm really curious about is teaching people, speeding up that process by deliberately having people work with speech in groups whilst maintaining their meditative practice. And the reason why that's so important is the culmination of every tier of development involves engaging in a we at that level. So for instance, at a concrete tier of development where a child is just working with concrete things, just stuff. And when they first start, it's just purely narcissistic. It's my stuff. And then they slowly realize that there's other objects there called people and that there's a collective there. And slowly they have to adjust to that concrete collective on the playground. And then that process repeats itself at a more subtle tier as cognition becomes more sophisticated and you, and you go to college and you have to begin to learn how to participate in a subtle tier where it's not just you that have ideas, but hey, Rick, you have ideas too. And we're passing ideas backwards and forwards, right? That's yeah, a subtle, enriching right? each other by doing so. That's right. And then at the next tier of development, where basically not only is it we're passing ideas backwards and forth right now, but my field and your field are communicating. And if I'm aware that you are also someone who has a field of awareness, then there's also a quality of relatedness that is different than if I just thought that I was the only awakened person. I was just like, oh, Rick. You need to understand, right? Relating to you like you were just... Yes, you know, Swamiji, thank you. That's right. That's much better, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so, so that process, if that can be sped up for people, I think you can speed up the integration phase from, let's say, a couple of decades to a couple of years. Yeah, that's interesting. Good point. And that needs to happen, too, because we just don't have forever. No, we can't. So what kind of things are you doing? And... Mm-hmm. With whom and how many people are you working with? You know, I mentioned my friend who 
did a psychedelic journey with someone you had trained, apparently. I don't know if you trained her in psychedelic stuff or therapy or, or yeah. what. So, you know, what's your cornucopia or your, your uh, toolkit? It's a toolkit. Well, my apprenticeship phase with Dr. Dan ended maybe five years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, he passed away recently. Parkinson's, I believe. Was it? That's right. I was actually going to continue that lineage, but it got to a point, maybe it's the whole teacher apprentice thing whereas like actually there's some glaring holes here dan and that wasn't what he wanted to look at so that was time for me to leave yeah i did the same thing with the tm movement that's a necessary part of maturity when chicks uh, crack out of the egg it's time to leave the incubator if you stay in the incubator you just make trouble for the other eggs that's right that's right (laughs) so so for maybe like 15 years i've been working one-on-one with students that was a really rich time of following people's contemplative practice, interviewing them of, you know, maybe a, an hour interview every three months and tracking people's long, their growth over some people like 10, 15 years. And you had them doing practices regularly in between your sessions with them. As oh, well. yeah, yes, yes, yeah. exactly. They were doing a Mahamudra, which is one of the Tibetan stages of practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually Dr. Dan and myself did a, a research project with a Judson Brewer and some other researchers, which was on basically the neurological signature of each of these stages. So we got the brain signature of each of the stages. So that apprenticeship of interviewing a lot, maybe six people a day, five days a week for 10 years. Wow. Different (laughs) people? Or no, you rotate them because you're checking up on their progress. Yeah. So Hmm. I basically beginning this in January, I'm beginning the process of we we basically started a a four year training program. So the, the point is is now it's time to move out of that phase of working in that way. I mean that was an amazing apprenticeship because I got to see how people grow mm-hmm. and track them. But now the question is, well, how do you do that at scale? And so, what will people learn if they do this training program? Well, the system that, you know, the contemplative system that we've been working on, which is, okay. you know, the integration of the Indo-Tibetan meditative tradition with psychodynamic ego development perspectives. We're beginning that process has begun. You know, we have, uh, I don't know, 120 students who are on this four year. That's quite a few. Yeah, it's quite a few. Do they all have to start together or can people come in at any point? No, it's going to be every year. So next year, we'll start another year one as we have a year two. But just, like the way a college would be. Actually, this is my mind, what a bachelor's degree of contemplative, like what would be like the Western level bachelor's degree, right? That's a model, a four-year model of a bachelor's level education. So, and presumably these people are scattered all over and you're doing it online. Yeah, online. Maybe, maybe with some occasional retreats or something. That's right. So that is one of the dimensions. And then within that, there's an integration of kind of integral studies, contemplative psychology. You have faculty other than yourself? We do, but we're, we're slowly, it's an emergent process because in, in order to build it, I had to like get people to enroll. And now that it's rolling, we can now begin to add more faculty. The intention, what I'd like to do is really build that kind of four-year contemplative education and what you know what's the best system that we can bust education that people can have who want to get a really deep dive in contemplative studies and i'm sure this will be evolving all your life you know it's not going to be cut in stone no and part of that will be psychedelic work 
Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Say something, I might have a question or two. My understanding of the mystery schools, the academies, and so whether that's the Tibetan, Indo-Tibetan mystery schools or the Vedic mystery schools or Egyptian or the uh, South American, and actually even to that extent, actually the Western esoteric tradition, that chemistry, every subject has its sacred version. There's sacred mathematics, there's sacred architecture, there's sacred chemistry, right? Sacred like medicine, all these medicine, things. That's right, exactly. So that's the first thing. I also really believe that the prior cycles of, of time, prior to the last few thousand years that we've been in, there was a major emphasis on levels of consciousness that we might recognize right now as being more shamanic, right? And that that level of development as the planet, as the planet evolved, there was a necessity to stimulate the mental capacity of humanities. It's been super stimulated for a whole cycle of time. But I do believe that we're coming to a time of integration. The part of this synchronistic intelligence, integrative intelligence is now to also reclaim what we've lost from the past. Because in order to really move forward into the future, you actually have to integrate the past as well. And interaction with the plant kingdom. And the first dimension, real dimension of the sacred, other than the mineral dimension, is the plant dimension. And in my kind of cosmology, the way I see it, and some of the other perennial traditions do as well, we're also plants. Human sexuality comes evolved from plants. <laughs> Stamens and pistols. And yeah, yes, right. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like springtime, it's terrible. I mean, all that semen floating around. <laughs> yeah. So in my mind, the dream state, what the esoteric tradition would call the astral plane, is literally the vegetative dimension of the sacred. It is the tissue, the datu of the planet, that the plants are particularly attuned to. And if you're, a, you know, and somebody who's practiced and been interested in traditional medicines, if you are humble enough to open your heart to the plants, it will tell you, it will communicate with you. I and met it, a man one time. Well, it was a, he was in front of a fairly large crowd, but his name was Balraj Maharshi and he was in India, Northern India, and he could just walk through a forest and the plants would speak to him and tell him what they were good for. So that's the astral intelligence that we've lost, right? Now, we lost it particularly in the West because the Roman Catholic Church went after that. They yeah, burned people at the stake for messing with herbs and things. That's right. And some of the lists, even in the, um, in the Inquisition, right, they list the herbs that these guys are being burnt at the stake for. And the yeah. numbers of these herbs are Western psychedelic herbs. Interesting. Right? Interesting. So we had this tradition, the Dionysian wine was a psychedelic wine, right? The Elysian this was a psychedelic. And even to some extent, psychedelics used in the Jewish tradition, the Christian, the Druids. I mean, this is, and not even that, if you actually go back and you research and look into some of the early Freemasons and alchemists, a lot of what they were trying to cover up in my mind was they were working with psychedelics. So that dimension for me is a part of herbal medicine. It's part of the sacred the next layer of the sacred that opens up to the personality, not the level of sacred that opens up to higher consciousness, like way up, but in terms of like opening to sacred world, the problem that we have is not a lack of higher consciousness from meditating. 
I mean, granted, I said that, you know, it affects cognition, that's important. But the other problem is we left behind the sacred. So we left behind the shamanic sacred where, oh, look, I can see spirits. You know, I can talk to plants. Like if our culture was able to, some of our greats in our culture, like Goethe or Paracelsus or even Isaac Newton, were engaged with in alchemical engagement and, and really curious about how the various kingdoms of the planet communicated. And the whole thing was dumbed down in terms of turning lead into gold and stuff. But obviously that was maybe even metaphorical for something much well, more profound. It's like when you read the, the tantras in India, there's a, the twilight language you know, keep the idiots out by using metaphor. Right. Even Jesus did that. He said, you know, he spoke in parables because he of didn't course. want everybody to understand what he was saying. Right. Well, let's take, let's take alchemy, for instance. If we understand that we do now, that how I perceive something affects it. So if I'm engaged first with a plant and I'm relating to the plant as if it's alive and as if it has something to tell me, and then I'm going to assist the plant in its spiritual evolution, by putting it through a sadhana, I'm going to distill, I'm going to put it into a process, a chemical process, which is an outer version of an inner sadhana. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to relate to the liquid in there in a non-dual way. I'm going to spend hours, because I don't have any TV, I'm going to spend hours relating to this liquid in a particular way. We now understand... Imbuing it with shakti or something. It imbues it with shakti. That's what alchemy was. And then if you understand what the plant is... What you got in that glass, by the way? (laughs) What's that? I say, what do you got in that glass, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) It's Sunday. (laughs) It's water. (laughs) Okay, good. Holy water now. So alchemy was basically non-dual chemistry. Right. Non-dual, both in terms of the relationship with the mineral and the plant kingdom in terms of treating them as being sacred, but then also how you are relating to the chemical operations that you're doing. Imagine if if our chemical system was non-dual chemistry. Imagine what would <laughs> the kind of, we would open up a whole discovery of a completely different understanding of chemistry and of how herbs and substances and compounds influence the human body. Not sure you're going to convince the chairman of Monsanto, but anyway. I'm sure I won't. My father was a chemist, so I grew up in that environment. So it's really important that not only do we develop the higher consciousness, but we reintegrate the lower consciousness. I.e. that we reintegrate the understanding of the ancestral worlds, the indigenous worlds. Because otherwise, if we don't, then spirituality has a danger of being like some sort of fascist kind of from the head up. So we have to both open up above and open up below. That reminds me of something Thoreau said. He said, go ahead and build your castles in the air. That's where they belong, but put foundations under them. Yeah, that's right. So in my mind, every tradition, I really believe that, there was a relationship with plants for healing. So as a somebody who's you know, worked with people and healing people with plants, there's no difference for me like healing with plants the body or the emotions or the mind and the one, the ethnogens that help the mind heal. I'm always surprised at the kind of like fundamentalist spiritual people who just don't understand the fullness of what sacred culture is, that actually, of course, there were plants. 
We want to learn to relate to the intelligence of that kingdom, which is also within ourselves. I think it's, a, it's super important as part of developing capacity. If you think you're a good meditator, well, let's see how you're doing with meditating and resting in the nature of mind in a psychedelic experience. You probably exactly. heard the Neem Karoli Baba story, right? Where Ramdas brings him some LSD tablets and Neem yeah. Baba says, give me the tablets. He takes them. Nothing That's happens. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. So the point is, is you should be able to take the tablets and nothing happens. And if you're phased, that's useful information that you're not ready to die. So it's humbling. It's very important. I don't know about you, but as you as we continue the journey to continue to be humbled. Oh, yeah. That's a big one. Right? So I find those kinds of medicines are deeply useful for obviously healing and helping integrate trauma. My wife, Nicole, is a psychedelic therapist. She works in a clinic here in town. In my mind, these medicines are useful to help initiate at particular phases, like open something up and now follow through with a practice. Well, I have a few questions about all this. I was one of those spiritual fundamentalists for a long time, partially because I had used psychedelics rather recklessly in the 60s and gotten kind of messed up. And then meditation was so healing. But now I, I'm much more open-minded about it and um, have friends who have had good experiences with it. And I'm aware of the research at Johns Hopkins and NYU and all, all kinds of great stuff happening. So I guess one question I have for you, and this is along the lines of what you're saying, do you think that psychedelics, well, firstly, I think the, the very fact that they exist, all these plants, means that people are supposed to take them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Do you feel that they could play a major role as a catalyst in changing the collective consciousness of humanity, whereas meditation practices, you know, not that many people are going to take to them and stick to them, and it might take too long just using those? It's a great question. I think that there is a need for a new academy, so to speak, where meditation and psychedelics are different departments. Right. And this is, this is part of what we're, we're trying to build, what we're building. On the psychedelic side, I have peers who are involved in developments of, of new psychedelics legally <laughs> and psychedelic pharmaceutical companies. The kind of alchemy that I think that I'm interested in is if we take the Maharishi effect. Right. So you want me, you want to explain what that is or? Right. Well, the, the, the research done by the TM folk into the effect of uh, meditators on the larger social field. Right. I participated in a lot of those with groups anywhere from a few hundred to 8,000 people all meditating together and doing their thing together. And then guys like David Orm Johnson and others were trying to measure the effect that was having on social indicators. Right. So I think that's very real. I believe that the SOMA... The Vedic Soma. Let's say we have a laboratory environment where you do have highly capable meditators and even thousands of them. I do believe that you can actually structure water and that the psychedelics that are produced inside of that water-based psychedelics that are also programmed by the intentionality of the kinds of practitioners that are meditating that we will be able to develop a new class of psychedelics, much, much more refined, right? Because it's all about intentionality. If the intentionality of the alchemist or the chemist 
and the intentionality that is then brought to that particular what that thing is, then there will be a new psychedelic with a new contemplative system. Interesting. A, a new uh, wafer. I don't think it needs to be like super boom. The question is, is what kind of experience do people need to have? I think they need to have something that is hot, like roots them in their heart, opens them up, allows them to feel a deep sense of belonging and connection, but also a certain kind of intelligence. I do believe that there was always a role for psychedelics. I do believe that the Ayurvedic doctors in Nalanda, you know, the, the first university on the planet, had their own psychedelic department. That's my intuition that this has always been a part of the academy. So if it's at that level, yes, absolutely. If it's like people, you know, haphazardly experimenting. Partying and so on. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. No, no. So do you feel that psychedelics of some sort might be a useful tool all along the spiritual path, even at high stages of, of attainment? Or do you feel like their usefulness is only within a certain range and after that you go on without them? Well, it's a little bit like saying, do you think that chemistry is useful as people's chemistry changes as they progress along the path of more refined states of chemistry? Well, there's always chemistry going on inside of us. Yeah. You know, Every time you eat lunch, you depend upon chemistry. Well, well, all of these states have a chemical dimension to them. Right. right? Yeah. Oh, well, there's a neurophysiological correlate to all states of consciousness. But do you think that at a certain stage, psychedelics would be superfluous or counterproductive? I think that if we had had the kind of academy for the last 2000 years, that was cut 2000 years ago. If we had that academy that had been running for 2000 years, I think that we would have very sophisticated chemistry. I think we'll even find out that humans are designed to ingest certain kinds of chemistry that we just don't have access to. It's the same thing right now. If you have a lack of magnesium or a lack of calcium, my sense is yes, that the human beings, our chemistry will evolve. Right now, the chemistry of the, of the vehicles that you and I were born into, we have to spend a lot of time just trying to get that chemistry to a place. Yeah, it's pretty crude by comparison to what it could be. That's right. So yes, I think that there is, but I don't think we're talking about the kind of crude psychedelics we have now. After a thousand years of refinement or 2000 years of yeah. refinement, it would be a very, very sophisticated kind of science. And even so, I mean, psilocybin might always be very so useful, fine. just the way it is. Well, yes, I think what will happen... Unless you're suggesting that it can be some hybridization, can be, it can be bred into a more potent or more refined thing, the way marijuana has been. Well, that's one perspective. The other perspective is you do that, but the other perspective is actually that there's plant intelligence. And that as we start to engage in these substances more, we will realize... Like if you look at how they train in the Amazon with the dietas, right, where the shamans will just go on a diet of a single plant to learn and then commune with that plant. And of course, then you help communicate to the plant how it is that you would like them to evolve in order that they could be of benefit or we could be mutually of benefit. Interesting. There's a level of science here, but not just of outer science but more importantly, of gnosis, of reawakening a whole astral intelligence, a whole vegetal intelligence of 
relating to sacred world. Yeah. Right? Sacred world is not just up there. We're going to find out, oh, the mushrooms will start growing and like responding. But there is a psychic field that is the, you know, a psychic mycelium related to the mushrooms. And as we are engaged with them, they will mutate, not just because <clears throat> they with their genes. In other words, we and they will evolve together. Yeah, that's right. And mutually supportive of one another. And that's what alchemy was all about. The evolution and the support of helping the anima mundi, the soul of the world, evolve. It is practical non-duality, engaged with the plant kingdom. Are you in favor of legalization of marijuana? It's, it's legal in Colorado now, right? And sure. other places? Or, uh, how about psilocybin? As I think yeah, it's, I mean, it's all, not all it's decriminalized in well, Oregon and so on. We've now. been fighting. The war on drugs is 2,000 years old. <laughs> okay? It, begins it predates with, Nancy Reagan. Okay. It begins with the Romans. The Romans deliberately took out the Dionysian mystery schools, took out the Elysium. I mean, I think the Elysian mystery school was an operation for like a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And so the Romans took it out. We're coming to understand there was a whole trade in these medicines in the Mediterranean and the ancient worlds. Granted, we don't want people to misuse it. We want people to be educated. I mean, what I want is to see is education and the academy and be able to walk into a pharmacy and there's 50 different type of mushrooms and 50 type of marijuana and like, that kind of education but that's you know that's yeah of course yeah no i'm just saying though i mean it's a little blunt the way it is now it's just being legalized in places and people can just go at it without the nuance and sophistication and subtlety that you're recommending maybe this legalization even though it's blunt initially will lead us to the more responsible kind of thing you're talking about well i think it's part of the chaos that we're talking about it's the chaos from the bottom it's going to be like yes it's indicative of, of the situation that we're in right now. It's like, you know, like cry havoc, let loose the plant kingdom. Nicole, my wife, who is, uh, as I said, she's a medicine worker. We've been developing together a psychedelic Dharma curriculum, which is basically if you're a Dharma practitioner and you're interested in using these substances as part of your Dharma practice, how do you do that as part of sadhana? How do you relate to these? It's not just about using drugs it involves a whole appreciation of ritual and of attention then i feel um i think this is a really really important development yeah one thing i encounter quite a lot because people reach out who need help is people who either have had powerful kundalini awakenings and they can't get the genie back in the bottle so to speak and it's messing up their lives and or experiences with ayahuasca and so on that left them sort of dysfunctional condition. They haven't been able to adjust back to regular life. Sometimes those two things are related, like the ayahuasca will kick off a, a kundalini awakening. And there's a little network of people who can help with this kind of thing, but it's not adequate to the magnitude of the number of people who are having these kinds of problems. Well, that's exactly why I say that they have to be integrated into long-term initiatory systems. So right now, you know, we're going to build a, we're building this four year program. Really what I'm interested in building is a 40 year program, because as you well know, that's how long the journey is. And once you're planning for a 40 year role, a 40 year journey, then you can build uh, the kinds of institutions that support that kind of journey. 
Yeah, it's a lifelong thing, really. It's a lifelong thing. So, In fact, so, they could be useful on your deathbed as they're being at Johns Hopkins. Absolutely. But the point is, is that then ayahuasca, if, if it was part of a journey with people who are tracking you and part of an educational journey, what you're bringing up, I think, are cases where people go to an ayahuasca circle, have a kundalini awakening, and then that's it. There's no follow-up. There's no path. There's no integration. So these are incredibly powerful initiating medicines, and they need to be respected. So do you feel that the scene in general these days is a little bit too haphazard and irresponsible and not as careful and refined as you're suggesting here? I'm actually very much like you, Rick. I'm quite conservative in the sense that I am uh, somebody who's interested in in architecting long-term curriculums. I don't see any of that. So in, in my mind, it is chaos, but that's okay. <laughs> Frankly, I'd rather see that than the opposite, which is what we've had. And people yeah, which is repression and people and, in prison. You know, right, crazy. You know, I went to prison a couple of times, or jail a couple of times for this very reason when okay, I was well, a teenager. Yeah. yeah, so obviously there's amazing work being done in terms of maps and in terms of, you know, was it King's College, London? I think what we're going to see is things are going to are going to start maturing quickly. Yeah, that's good. I'm impressed with your vision. You just have this vast vision which involves completely transforming every aspect of society. So, good luck. Yeah, well, that's that's, that's great. What Bod- that's a, what a bodhisattva. At least in my tradition, that's what a bodhisattva does. Right? It, it is being given an impossible task. If you don't have an impossible task in my mind, then you're not really a bodhisattva because actually. Part of the path is being given the impossible task to do. That's not even intentionally, meaning the synchronistic nature of the level of mind that you open up at a particular point in the path will present you with a challenge. That challenge will seem unsurmountable, but it is engaging with that challenge that continues your character development and your growth. I think it's really good that people like you have a grand vision because if enough people have it, then collaboratively, even if we're not directly working together, we'll manifest it. So it's good to think big. I just had a meeting this week with people in the corporate world who want to have this level of training. So they're talking big sums of money. So my sense is that it's really about that if you have the integrity And if you also have the devotion, the love, and it's the right time, and I do think that now is the right time. I think that something is changing, right? I think that things are are speeding up, that one of the the dimensions of the academy is sacred finance. And if you do what you're meant to do, it will show up. So I have no doubt, I have no doubt that the resources will show up because they are showing up. And because, as you said, this isn't about you and it's not about me. This planet wants a new culture stat. (laughs) Enough already. So if there is an interconnected intelligence, if it is more than just you and me, but if it is a we, and that we is woven even into the plants, and the plants are going, go for it, Rick. Come on, (laughs) that circumstances will reveal themselves and allow for this new culture to arise. Yeah. And you know how with bees or ants, each bee or ant is doing what it needs to do 
unbeknownst to all the other bees and ants, but they all some have this collective mind where they all do the right things and everything gets done the way it needs to be. I agree. That's happening. Yeah, it's happening with us. For sure. What I'm interested in is the next order of that is to begin to go from coherence to cohering. The next level is how do you then bring that into organizations? Because actually, like TM, you actually do need to build organizations in order to have the coalescing of resources and departments to be able to put somebody on the moon, to take a culture from one time to another time, which is what we're talking about. You know, you need to build what we call in the Tibetan tradition, a color chakra, a time wheel, a, a mandala. A mandala is an organization that helps facilitate changing from one time to another time. I think that's what's happening around us right now. Yeah, it is. And it's fascinating to see it unfold. You know, I, I want to live a long life in part because this is also interesting. <laughs> I want to see how it Thank turns. How does this movie right? end, you know? <laughs> <laughs> May you live a long life. Yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah. I walk five miles a day. I meditate a couple hours, do all kinds of good stuff. A couple of questions came in, which will be, abrupt segues, but uh, we'll wrap it up after these questions and maybe make some overall points. Hopefully you'll understand this question. I haven't even read it thoroughly yet, but it's from someone named Quinn Berry in Canada. Question, with an infinity of options, why choose a skull to inhabit your personal space? What is the significance and or intent? It matters in what it communicates to others as well as what it reflects back to your unconscious. A skull is always resonant with death, but not necessarily negative. How would it affect you if you chose the symbol of the sun or a smiling face? What, do you have a skull behind you in the living room? Or what is he referring to? I have a a ring with a skull on it. I'm a Buddhist. So for me, I live in a culture that is in such complete denial of death and such complete denial of life. Death and life are inseparable to me. So the suppression, the repression of life is the suppression, the repression of death. A little reminder about how precious every moment is. Yeah. You know, the yogis that meditate in the cremation grounds and there's Absolutely. there's a famous painting of a Christian monk contemplating a skull and, you know. Yeah. It's so, a very important part of my practice is to recognize how precious It is this moment. And we live in a culture that communicates so much deadening. There is also the the fear element. I have Jewish ancestors, you know, I have like facing horrific genocide. Like I have to stay connected to the fact that on this planet right now, people are dying and, and suffering. And to kind of numb yourself out with feeling good and, and warm in my cozy room and not remember the reality of, of life. I think that that's. Yeah. 10,000 Americans are dying of COVID every month still. And there are still people who deny that it it exists. So uh, that pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah. I need a little reminder because I'm still in middle school. (laughs) Here's another question from John Cannon in Strasbourg, France. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? What he meant was at the deepest level of mind, the separation from ourselves and the fundamental field of reality is caused by fusion to the attentional system. Because the attentional system is always looking, it's always searching. And the fundamental release from being fused with the attentional system, where the mind is released into the whole, one of the qualities of that is profound innocence. 
profound innocence, centerlessness, insubstantiality, not knowingness. So it's a very technical term, very technical process around it. If we don't release from grasping onto the attentional system and release into the whole, we're never going to see the holiness of the whole that's always right here. Good. Yeah. What do you think? Similar. I, I wouldn't have used such fancy terminology, but innocence, <laughs> simplicity, lack of guile, lack of complexity, humility, mm-hmm. all kinds of qualities like that are extremely conducive to spiritual progress. Absolutely. Good. Well, I have a feeling that we could spend another six hours and still find new things to talk about in terms of all the different facets of your work. And I mean, we didn't really get in much to the ethics thing. And I know that's an important part of it all, but give people a taste of who you are and what you're doing. And I'll link to your websites and, um, you know, people can explore there and even go so far as to join your four-year program if they want to, or your 40-year program, whatever it becomes. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure, Rick. Yeah, it's really good, John. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And uh, I often feel this and say this at the end of interviews, but I, I hope to meet you in person someday. It's great that we have the internet and all, but there's nothing like kind of a little personal contact. That's why I used to love the science and non-duality conference, just getting together with everybody once a year. But maybe you need to have a Buddha's at the gas pump. I don't want to organize it. Irene doesn't believe me. Somebody else can do it. Somebody else can organize it. I'll come. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So thanks so much. Thanks Thanks to those who've been listening or watching and we'll see you for the next one.